1901, the founder of certainly American uh, psychology, William James, brother of the novelist Henry James, he noted that in one of his seminal works, uh, essentially transmundane mental states in spiritual practice were pragmatic and beneficial. Essentially, normal waking rational consciousness for William James was just one of many forms of consciousness, that there were entirely different forms of consciousness. Other states of transmundane awareness were in many ways more beneficial at times than what we consider run-of-the-mill mundane consciousness. He said that when we achieved a wider sense of perception, uh, letting go of our personal interests and the surrender of egoic control, that there was, in his words, an immense elation and freedom that occurs when the confining sense of selfhood melts down. It's truer, he said, than rational thought. And since then, uh, people in the West, such as Herman Hesse and many others, noted that there was much to be gained by achieving uh, altered states. Today, we know that mundane, run-of-the-mill consciousness is predominantly left hemisphere dominant. It left brain circuits narrowly focus attention on very predetermined goals, such as uh, uh, how am I going to get me some food, tools, shelters, a mate? And the left brain is very abstract, very uh, focused on the inner voice, which uh, thought that it adds to experience as a way to represent life in terms of both a narrative uh, that we can tell, and it creates a sense of self that's distinct from everyone else. It emphasizes our differences from other people, and it creates a sense that one's self is entirely wrapped up in our heads, not with any connection to our body. And as Evan Thompson uh, at the University of British Columbia says, ordinary experiences infused with a sense of mindness. All thought, all emotion, all sensations, and all perceptions are experienced as belonging to oneself. So it is an egocentric in that sense, not ego in the sense of we currently we sometimes use it as like grandiosity it's not it's just egocentric in the terms of we view everything we experience in terms of uh how it relates to me how it's mine how i feel about it and so forth well the non-dominant in most people's cases the right hemisphere of the brain is has far uh, simpler language centers that are not connotative, very metaphoric. The awareness is open, uh, very nature-oriented rather than self, or it's not about focused attention. It's a very global attention. And self, oneself is not experienced as separate from the world and from others, but fluid and embodied. It's an open and associative dreamlike state. And for almost all the time, the right or non-dominant uh, processing is uh, largely occurring in the background. So we're not aware of it. So clearly any form of um, processing that shifts the neural circuitry from left or dominant hemisphere, which views the world in terms of focusing on our thoughts, fixing on specific objects, self and 
ego-centered, where everything is represented in words and in terms of what does this mean to me? Anytime we shift to the subdominant hemisphere, we're we're going to experience a far more uh, open, uh, dreamlike state where the past is going to blend in with the present because the left is very present oriented and future plan oriented, whereas the right brain is very compares everything that's happening in the present to the past, and so. Anything again that switches uh, hemispheric dominance can produce a very altered state. Now, another way we can produce an altered state is by changing how the thalamus um, functions. The thalamus is a much deeper region of the brain. It is essentially the switchboard of the brain, or some people compare it with the executive secretary to consciousness, which could be viewed as the CEO of the entire uh, brain. Um, the thalamus works in the background, and it receives all of the raw sensory uh, perceptions from different lobes like the occipital and parietal and temporal, which, you know, filter sounds, visual images and body sensations and turns them into perceptions. And then the thalamus receives uh, these, um, these uh, results, but it decides what is worthy of our conscious attention and what is not worthy. So when we're very, very young, as children, our attention can be very distracted by pretty much any sensation because our thalamuses are not yet trained to filter out new sounds, colors, uh, new experiences. So uh, when we're young, there's very little what's called thalamic gating. Thalamic gating is when we filter out a lot of stuff. But over the course of life, we the frontal lobe trains, or in conjunction with the basal ganglia, trains the thalamus deeper in the brain to filter out a lot of our experience, a lot of memories, a lot of sensations, a lot of feelings and emotions, because they're deemed unimportant. And... Um, why do we do that? Well, actually, if we were constantly bombarded with body sensations and feelings and overwhelm and emotions and memories from the past and uh, sensory perceptions, it would be very difficult to think, plan, focus on long-term goals. So our very ability to get lost in thought and be cognitive species that can be can can live up in our left, you know, frontal cortexes and think thoughts and worry about what's going to happen to me in the future or how do I compare with other people is courtesy of the fact that we're filtering out at any given moment a lot of the experiences, sensations, perceptions of the present moment. So, uh, in other words consciousness, what we experience as consciousness normally is shaped by what we focus attention on, uh, our ability to narrowly focus attention when we're in normal states, rather than being global and just aware of the entire visual field, but also it's courtesy of the ability to not include a lot of present time experience. So this filtering out of the present, um, the, the cognition, the perceptions of the present requires a lot of balancing in neurotransmitters. And if you stimulate uh, uh, a lot of the receptors, especially serotonin or MDMA, MM, and MDA, which is essentially glutamate receptors, you can create imbalances, which then open up the thalamic filters and disrupts info processing. And what happens is you achieve 
an altered state of awareness. And we're going to talk about how these states are generally achieved. So altered states are probably most commonly experienced as what's called hypnagogic, uh, which is essentially what happens when you fall asleep. Your left hemisphere loses dominance during sleep. And so you become primarily right brain, which dismantles all of the models and concepts used to construct our narrative world. And it leads to um, a less constrained thalamic filters, which creates an incoherent state where we no longer have a sense that ever, you know, of a confined boundaried self. And because we're right brain dominant in dreams, we can see people from our past and places from our past mixed in with people and concerns of our present. There's a sense of the narrative is no longer uh, coherent because we can constantly be uh, in one situation and then jump to another image situation or we can be trying to get somewhere but that without ever moving and so that's characteristic of an altered state of consciousness where there's no longer any narrative coherence whatsoever and of course in dreams shadowy figures can blend with transgressive fixations that are either sexual or aggressive, and it all can be experienced as if it's real. Um, so obviously, if you want to achieve uh, an altered state of consciousness, you fall asleep and you dream. But we're not talking about that tonight because... Uh, that's hardly under the rubric of Buddhist practice and Buddhist um, psychological insights. Now, another way that people commonly achieve altered states and, and what's not going to be the topics of tonight's talk, but I will mention it, of course, are taking certain substances, um, many of which are having a newfound popularity um these days i think that because of the pandemic and the constraints on travel and having the kind of experiences from exploring the world that are normally present people are now more than ever uh turning towards internal experiences and so that's led to <clears throat> an even greater popularity in um taking and consuming substances such as mescaline, which is um, cask, uh, cactus like peyote and San Pedro, and uh, psilocybin, which is from mushrooms. And then there's also 5-MeO-DNT, which is um, frog toxins. And um, all of these uh, disrupt thalamic processing and uh, leads to a diminution of left brain um, functioning and leads to bottom-up processing where both the uh, body and world arrive in disjuncted, disjointed states, colors are saturated, um, sounds due, due to synesthesia can be seen as colors or colors as sounds. Sounds can be blended with imaginary audio hallucinations. Uh, visual hallucinations can occur as well as a blending of processed images from the present and past. Um, and with the diminution of language centers of the left hemisphere, essentially what happens is during uh, psychedelic experiences, we lose the ability to coherently describe and narrate what's happening to oneself. Um, and as a result, drug-induced ego dissolution occurs. Uh, and that's why today in uh, plant medicine, ayahuasca rituals, and so forth, integration is very important, which is after one undergoes um, a trip, one then meets with other people and tries to make sense of the experience in a way that helps 
uh, integrate the experiences into our day-to-day -day mundane functioning. But integration is in many ways very, very, very difficult because again, the very faculties that allow integration in the left dominant hemisphere are dismantled during the experience. So it's always just a kind of uh, attempt to describe in many ways what cannot be described. But um, uh, so there are many promising uh, possibilities. I, for one, am sober, so I don't consume such substances, uh, but there are promising developments. And I should also note that even though I'm sober and don't consume as a Buddhist pastor uh, substances to achieve altered states, I don't view necessarily people who are in sobriety who consume uh, substances like ayahuasca to be breaking their sobriety. Um, for me, nobody takes ayahuasca to have a fun time. <laughs> uh, anyway, psychoactive plants are unpredictable. Um, they lead to heightened amygdala activity and in, and in many ways due to the uh, excitation of of serotonin can lead to um, heightened moods. And there's uh, clinical psychologists who break down the results of psychoactive plants and medicines in terms of three possible results. The most beneficial is a sense of, or the two most beneficial, one is oceanic boundlessness, hence the, the, the title of tonight's talk. Oceanic boundlessness is a dissolution of one's ego. One no longer has a sense of interiority or exteriority. We don't overlay our experience with thought or a narrative structure. <clears throat> we see all the experience in this complete, enormous, all-encompassing present and there's very positive emotions uh, present often, such as serenity or happiness. And that's uh, obviously can be very useful in treating uh, uh, treatment resistant monopolar depression. A second possibility is, is called restructuring, where intense auditory and visit, visual hallucinations are so overwhelming that they lead to uh, a complete different state of perception that is in many ways awe-inspiring, but not necessarily positive or negative, just completely overwhelming and some suggest that in the aftermath of this can be in certain cases beneficial and other cases not beneficial. We'll talk about some of the not beneficial. Uh, and then there's anxious ego dissolution. Uh, the, the loss of self-control that happens when we, due to the, the bombardment of of serotonin in a hallucination experience can result in not only an open dream-like state, but it heightens amygdala activity, which can lead to chronic hypervigilance and paranoia during trips. So many people have, in fact, very bad trips at times where they can experience uh, because of the right amygdala uh, being very uh, hyperfunctioning, they can experience a sense of being chronically vulnerable or un in states of threat. Um, so that's one reason for me to, I would urge uh, to be careful uh, when one uses, uh, if one is going to use these substances and to titrate, which means take very small amounts at first. Uh, another is that roughly one in 50 individuals have the genetic predisposition for schizophrenia, and most are not 
aware of it. Schizophrenia is highly heritable, uh, while 90% of the people who have the predisposition don't actually go on to develop the actual expression of schizophrenia. Environmental factors can work together to push us over the threshold into expressing those characteristic pathologies. And so what are these environmental factors? Well, one can grow up in an extremely violent household that can push one over the edge into schizophrenia, life traumas, and hallucinogenic substances such as LSD and uh, psilocybin are very capable of pushing people over into uh, a full expression of the symptoms of schizophrenia. Um, so, um, and during those states, the return of compartmentalized trauma memories are notorious. And so it can be very, very, very scary and unpleasant to say the least. And while in many cases, induced schizophrenia can be alleviated with, of course, atypical antipsychotics to agree, I don't think anybody wants to subject themselves to that. Uh, both uh, holotropic breathing and breath work are ways to also achieve altered states of awareness. There's a, a lot of different theories as to how. Certainly the act of breathing in both holotropic and breath work, both uh, which is then released into very relaxed breathing, shifts us from sympathetic to parasympathetic. And in parasympathetic, we can move towards the hypnagogic states, as well as the change in the balance of carbon dioxide in the body also can induce a pleasant uh, transformative state. So meditations, the topic of tonight's top, uh, talk, can lead to altered states. In fact, in many ways, uh, that's one of the goals. There are numerous goals of meditation, but in the Buddha's uh, practice, there was actually a purposeful attainment of transmundane or locatura states, specifically to experience his enlightenment and awakening. Um, meditation, according to the to countless uh, clinicians, including uh, in a paper called, uh, what was it, uh, Psychedelics, Meditation, and Self-Consciousness. I think it was clinicians at the University of Oxford College of London, not the University, the College of London, and at the Max Planck Institute noted that meditation can induce transcendent states very similar to boundless, oceanic boundlessness, i.e. the kind of the uh, states that people who take uh, hallucinogens are seeking, the pleasant uh, states of selflessness uh, and where either we're infused with a sense of uh, complete, non-separate, non-dual awareness, also infused with compassion. As they note, uh, what was the quote? Um, Long-term meditators can voluntarily induce a selfless mode of awareness characterized by a, a phenomenal experience free of the sense of personal ownership. In other words, we don't experience everything that's happening in terms of what does this mean about me? or uh, why is this happening to me? The mind feels far, far more expansive. Everything is experienced as being within the mind with no inside or outside. And yes, while I have absolutely no claims whatsoever to awakening or uh, enlightenment, but I can very much claim that in my practice whenever when I want, I can achieve very pleasant altered states of awareness without consuming any substances whatsoever. And for me, 
it's actually one of the great joys of being uh, practitioners uh, for now <laughs> well over 30 plus years. So um, there is, when we meditate, um, uh, neuroscientists such as James Austin, who's the most prolific in studying the relationship between uh, meditation and altered states, we just decrease the parietal lobe, which is the part of the brain that not only that essentially places ourself in the world and that situates ourself in the world around us. It creates a blurred sense of inside and out, and it diminishes uh, frontal lobe activation in the orbital frontal. According to Austin's uh, prolific research, uh, he notes that there are two dominant forms of processing. The most dominant in daily life is uh, egocentric, top-down, uh, meaning it's frontal and uh, top of the brain inhibiting bottom-up processing, uh, upper parietal and so forth. And it focuses on external sensory processing and left hemispheric language. So we basically, when we're in that state, we're walking around uh, looking at the world and thinking about it and taking everything in terms of oneself. But he notes that when we're deeply absorbed in concentration-based meditation, uh, this top-down egocentric processing can be replaced with what he calls allocentric pathways that are bottom up and are right brain dominant and lead to a profound state of sometimes referred to awakening, enlightenment, satori, and so forth, or at least an altered state of awareness. Now, in terms of meditation, I should note that Today, there's a great deal of emphasis, understandably, on mindfulness practices, which are essentially non-judgmental awareness, systemic observation of feelings and moods and thoughts arising and passing. And it's the purpose of it is to play a significant role in therapeutic healing, trauma recovery, self-integration, emotion regulation, but there are no altered states in uh, the goal of mindfulness is not to produce altered states and due to the very nature of it, which is a, a chronic observational mode of, of viewing um, uh, feelings arise and pass, moods arise and pass, thoughts arise and pass, uh, body sensations arise and pass, that it's not conducive to altered states. It's just conducive to an observational state. But the Buddha's awakening, as told in the Pali Canon, did not happen due to mindfulness practice. It happened due to a practice called jhana, which is another, another word for a refined altered state of consciousness produced by very, very fixed concentration practices. So the Buddha wasn't practicing mindfulness or sati when he became enlightened or when he experienced uh, his great insights. He actually was practicing concentration. And in those concentration practices from the early texts, we see all the characteristics and the descriptions that are similar to altered states, a diminution of inner speech, uh, a non-dual, boundless state of awareness without inside or outside. And the Buddha emphasized great states of joy and rapture were experienced along with a kind of uh, serenity uh, where he felt he no longer had to do anything. He could just simply sit and observe the 
the new consciousness that he had achieved through practice. So how do you do this? Well, um, we can say for certain that long, very subtle exhalations are activating of the parasympathetic nervous system, which reduces all of the stress and mobilization states of the sympathetic nervous system. And during that practice, characteristic of it is top-down processing drops out, as well as left brain processing, and we become right brain dominant. When we practice concentration tools where we emphasize very long, subtle, smooth exhalations, and where we uh, uh, focus our attention entirely on a one internal sensation and make it all-consuming so that it transcends uh, dual inside-outside perception, then we can go to a state of what the Buddha called the divine eye, the Diba uh, Kakuchu, I, I can't remember how it's pronounced, the divine eye, which is the ability to see and perceive in a completely different way. So how do we, uh, what are ways to produce this state? Not just in terms of long exhalations. Um, in some Buddhist monks I've studied with talk about breath counting, counting up to 10, then back down from nine, counting up to eight, then back down from seven. So you count your breaths, one, to, and then you count up to 10, and then you count down from nine. Each breath is given a number, and so forth. And when you finally get to all the way down, uh, you achieve a state of, it's said to be transcendent concentration. Um, in many practices, they use what's called nimitta, which means you visualize a shape that's very simple, like a circle or a square, and you give it a color. And with each breath, you expand the color or the shape, uh, with, especially with each uh, exhalation, you relax the body. And with each inhalation, you subtly expand the nimitta until it becomes all consuming. So if you start it with a little white circle, you keep on expanding it until everything you're consumed in this kind of color or shade that's fully uh, expansive. Now, in the Buddha's case, the altered state was achieved in the jhana practice by a very simple approach where he scanned his body and he evaluated all the sensations in terms of what was the most pleasant. And he used and spread that pleasant sensation in his body until it consumed his entire body. And when he did this, he experienced a great sense of joy and rapture. He was so peaceful that he no longer focused anymore on this pleasurable sensation as being in the body. He just infused it everywhere so that he even experienced the pleasure, as it were, the rapture as being outside of his body. And then he got to a point where he was in a complete transformative state of complete um, oneness with the experience, uh, ekagata, as it's known in early Buddhism. And it was that state that he had his enlightenment and saw all the mystical insights about uh, rebirth and uh, the samsaric nature of existence and so forth and so on. So in tonight's practice, we're actually going to be doing a jhana practice. 
and if you want, you can aim to have some degree of an altered state, or you can simply enjoy the experience as being very, very peaceful. And uh, this is an alternative to the run-of-the-mill uh, mindfulness practices that are so associated today with uh, meditation. So thank you for listening. That's tonight's uh, talk on the nature of how of altered states, what creates them, and how we go about creating them in meditation. Now we're actually going to practice. Don't expect to be able to achieve any kind of transmundane or mind-expanded states when we first practice. These uh, samadhi tools, it took me a very long time uh, to achieve anything remotely like a transformative state of ego-less, boundary-less, non-dual. Uh, but it's attainable for all. It just requires practice. And yes, there are many times today, these days, where if I'm at all anxious or disturbed about anything in the world where uh, a transformative state is not within reach. So there's some days where we can achieve the transmundane and other days where we can't. But if you do keep practicing, it will be at your disposal. And while you find a comfortable seat, just reminding you, if you'd like to support my work, uh, you can Venmo Dharma Punks with an XNYC, or you can use the PayPal button on our website, Dharma Punks NYC. And it's through your support that all my work is possible. So thanks for that. And now let's find a comfortable seated position. And strap yourself in. We're going to be heading for unconditional peace and tranquility. At least that's the aim of this practice. So closing the eyes, that's very beneficial in this practice. If you're not going to close your eyes for this practice, see if you can uh, either look at something without any content. So in Zen practice, they stare at a white wall. Uh, essentially, what we want to do is diminish external uh, sensory processing of the parietal so that we can help with moving from top down to bottom up allocentric processing. And that requires disconnecting from focusing on what's going on around us to focusing on what's happening internally. And just take a survey of your body and just um, take note if there's anything at all that feels habitually, any muscles that feel habitually tensed. Very often for me, I have to lift my shoulders and rotate them back to release that tensing in the shoulders. And then I'll do paired muscle relaxation where I'll tense like the muscles in my feet and then relaxed. I'll tense the muscles in my thighs and then relax. I'll squinch the buttocks and then relax. I'll tense the muscles in the arms and, and hands and make fists and then release and then squinch the muscles in the face and then release 
tensing and releasing actually helps us relax. It can remove all of the action potential and clenching that's built up in muscle groups. And now what we're going to do is bring our attention to the breath. And we're going to be focusing on trying to at first make the, bring the attention on the breath in such a way that all other concerns seem secondary. And right now your purpose at this moment in time is simply to make your breath as comfortable as it can be. And we're gonna do that by one, making it as smooth on the in-breath and then as long and complete on the out-breath so that the out-breath becomes easily as long, hopefully longer than the inhalation. And the uh, there's not going to be any sense that we're pushing out air in the exhalation. It's just a very slow, unforced, unhurried, re complete release. And over time, as we keep bringing a loving, caring attention to the breath, we're going to try to make the experience of the breath increasingly subtle, by which The inhalation will be very soft, slow and complete, and then a very long, soft, slow, complete exhalation. And the durations between the end of an exhalation and the beginning of an inhalation will increase. This kind of breathing is associated with deep states of relaxation. Even when people sleep, and so the sole bit of effort to keep us awake might be establishing some kind of balance in the body just to keep us from falling asleep. But we're gonna try to get as close as we can to complete restorative, restful, peaceful, focused ease. Sometimes the most helpful way to stay awake while experiencing ease is to focus your attention on the breath at first. When the attention is focused, there's still enough subtle degrees of dopamine being released to keep us awake. And now 
you can either survey your body and try to find the most soothing, peaceful sensation. For some, it might be in the palms of the hands. It could be in the, the eyes if they're settled, or it could be in the heart center if it feels warm, or it could be in the belly if you're doing a soft belly breathing practice. Just find the most pleasant sensation. And with each long, slow inhalation, that's very subtle, try to expand this pleasant sensation through your body. And with each exhalation, try to release and relax any other sensations to the point that they disappear and keep bringing your attention back to the pleasant sensation. Now, if this is diff proving difficult, of course, you can use the nimitta practice of visualizing a very simple shape and color, a blue square, a red triangle, a yellow circle, and just expand it with every breath. Every time your attention moves to thought or to hearing or fixating on some sound or uh, external Stimuli just relax and gently bring your attention back to the pleasant sensation in the body and keep trying to expand it. Sometimes I'll find multiple pleasant sensations and expand them in unison until they all join together. See if you can become aware of wherever you conceive of your sense of self. For many of us, it's in the head. And then see if you can lower or expand this sense of self till it 
is merged with some of the pleasant sensation in the body. So you're lowering your sense of awareness into the body or expanding the sense of awareness into the body. And you're aiming to reduce the sense of your self as being words happening in the head. And now the boundaries of self are expanding fully below. See if you can expand awareness beyond being in a body, as well as the pleasure now expanding beyond the body. So we no longer are focused on the sense of having an outline or a boundary Just see if you can extend awareness so that every single sensation you're experiencing is now part of a unified state of awareness, but free of any thought or narration. It's helpful if you can add a non-forced, unforced smile. Release any image you hold in your mind of yourself. And just try to spread the any pleasant sensation that's present and any sense of awareness spread it as much as possible with each soft inhalation and exhalation and just allow now whatever images that need or want to arise, allow them to pass through. No longer filtering anything out, just expanding awareness and pleasure and let everything else just pass through.
See if consciousness now can become so settled and expansive that you're not moving towards anything, no longer trying to get anywhere in the future. totally releasing into a very expansive, open state of awareness with, without any boundary, completely infused with a state of ease. using this ease to relax everything you experience, especially should any tension or tightness be experienced in the body, just release. At this point, try to let go of anything that's holding you back from just fully relaxing into this moment. Anything that feels limiting. So at this point, I'm going to just ring the bowl. And when you hear the sound, take as long as you need. Don't rush away from any ease that you've developed. Just allow it to become part of the experience, of course, when you open your eyes, eventually they, any sense of the transformed awareness will dissipate if you've achieved any, but you'll still have a lot of the ease with you. <laughs> 